Mr. Rogers had his cardigan. I have my fur coat. For Narnia story time. You know you all want one like this, right? Actually, I'm kind of afraid to go out in it in case like, I get stuff thrown at me or, I don't know, animal's blood or something. <coughs> Guys, what, what, what's the theme of our... What's the theme of our, our Christmas series? Narnia, yeah. And so we are in the part of the story of Narnia where Edmund, who's one of the brothers, who's kind of, who's kind of like the meaner brother in the story, um, point to your sibling that's the meaner sibling. No, I'm just kidding. No, don't do that. Um, so Edmund... Edmund, even though he had made fun of Lucy about finding this land called Narnia, she didn't, he didn't, well, none of them believed her, but then he, fi- he finds himself in Narnia, and he knows that Lucy is in there as well, but he can't find her, and who he runs into instead, who does he run into? Do you guys know? Yeah. The White Witch, and she thinks she's the what of Narnia? The queen. She thinks she's the queen of Narnia, but we know she's really not the queen. But anyway, the white witch invites Edmund to get onto her sleigh, and she begins to have this conversation with um, Edmund. Okay? I'm going to read from the part of the book where Edmund's on the queen's sleigh, and she's trying to find out stuff about Edmund and his brother and sisters. It is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. The queen let another drop fall from her bottom, from the bottle onto the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more, more delicious. He was quite warm now and very comfortable. Remember, Narnia is, do you know what? Always winter, but never, never Christmas because of the white witch. Have you guys ever had Turkish delight? Has anyone here had Turkish delight before? Oh, some of you have. Do you guys want to try Turkish delight? Yeah, yeah? okay. Turkish delight. Can I, can I admit what this is attempt number two? Amber kindly tried to make Turkish delight and it was disgusting. <laughs> so this is, if you know Sandra Lee, Sandra Lee's version in the sense, anyway, we didn't really make all of it, but we did put uh, sugar, uh, what is it called? Powdered sugar on it. Okay, you ready? Obviously, I know nothing about baking. All right, take one and try one. Okay, take one. Turkish delight. Mmm, could you imagine eating a whole box of it? That's what Edmund did. He had a whole box of Turkish delight. And that is good. I don't like it. Do we see happy faces here? I'm not sure. Are these happy faces? Yeah. You want one? Who hasn't had one? You don't want it? <laughs> Henry looks in pain over here. <laughs> Just hold on to it, bud. Mmm. Fred, why don't you... We got lots here, so if any adults want to have Turkish delight, go pass it around, Fred. 
All right, kids, let's keep going the story. Now you know what Turkish delight is. And Edmund had a whole box of it. Okay, listen up. While he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it is rude to speak with one's mouth full, but soon he forgot about this and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. And the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat, and he never asked himself why the queen should be so inquisitive. She got him to tell her that he had one brother and two sisters and that one of his sisters had already been in Narnia and had met a fawn there and that no one except himself and his brother and sisters knew anything about Narnia. She seemed especially interested in the fact that there were four of them and kept on coming back to it. You are sure that there are just four of you? She asked. Two sons of Adam's and two daughters of Eve, neither more nor less? And Edmund with his mouth full of Turkish delight, kept on saying, yes, I told you that before, and forgetting to call her your majesty. But she didn't seem to mind now. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished. And Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he would like some more. Probably the queen knew quite well that he was thinking what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, okay, listen into this, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, magic Turkish delight, and that anyone who at once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating till they killed themselves, but she did not offer him any more. Kids, do you like Christmas? Yes. Yes. I'm assuming, like most people, you like Christmas because of the presents. The presents are pretty great, right? And also... The holidays usually mean there's a lot more treats to eat, like Turkish Delight, right? Or not Turkish Delight, but other things. But here's the thing about presents and treats, is that usually they just leave us wanting to have more and more and more of it. Kind of like Turkish Delight with Edmund. That no matter how many presents or treats we get, we just want to have more of it. You can maybe even remember in past Christmases, you would open a gift and be super excited about it, and two seconds later... You would move on to the next gift and forget about the one that you had opened already. It just seems like there's never enough presents or treats. I think the most important thing about Christmas is not the presents, right? (laughs) The most important thing about Christmas is celebrating that God came in the flesh through Jesus as the greatest present of all. A present greater than any other toy or treat and that makes every present seem like just a cheap toy that breaks after just a few minutes of playing with it. Jesus is the present that makes us not want to have any more presents. That's how great of a present he is. Kids, I do hope that you're excited about Christmas and I hope that you're excited about your presents, but what I hope more than that is when you Look at the presents underneath your tree when you open the presents underneath your tree that you remember that those presents and the treats that you have over Christmas holidays point you to something even better. They point you to the greatest present of all, which is God come in the flesh through Jesus and that he is the one that brings us life to the full and into relationship with God. Okay? All right, go sit down with your parents. Thanks for joining me. My fur coat is falling apart. It's a thrift, thrift store fur coat.
let me pray real quick and we'll continue. Father, we pray that we would hear the voice of God as we hear the Word of God preached, whether it's just hearing even the message you have for the kids, or whether it's the message for the adults, or everything in between, that we would hear your voice, that we would be transformed and changed and challenged and encouraged and comforted. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we have an interesting relationship with food in general. I would say that our culture is obsessed with food. And it could be for all kinds of different reasons. And here are some phrases that kind of are commonly thrown around in our culture today. It could be, I eat my feelings. Or, I struggle with food. Or, I'm on the keto diet. Or, I'm a gluten-free, non-GMO vegan. Or, I rely on food stamps. Or, my kids are on free reduced lunch. Or, I'm anorexic. Or, I'm obese. Or, I'm bulimic. Or, I ate at a Michelin star restaurant this past weekend. Or, I want to end world hunger. Or, I want to take a picture of the food at this restaurant and post it on Instagram. Food is a necessity. Food is pleasurable. And yet, our relationship with food is always complicated as human beings. What we put in our mouths tell us a lot about our culture, our beliefs, our values, our circumstances. I don't know if you've ever um, been at the grocery store lining up and you see the person's cart in front of you and you kind of like, even without thinking, start taking a mental note of what's in their cart. And very quickly, you're making observations and deductions about that person. Oh, frozen fried chicken. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, tofu. You're one of those people. Which I resent that kind of thinking because I love tofu as an Asian. <laughs> Long before there were grocery stores or that we would judge each other based on what we put in the cart, Jesus knew that the way to a man's heart or a woman's heart is through the stomach. That what we put in our mouth says a lot about who we are. And Jesus knew that hunger and thirst were these metaphors, these powerful metaphors for yearnings and longings and desires that we all have. And Jesus is teaching really in this section in John 6 that he is the fulfilling bread and that therefore we should feast on him and nothing else. That he is the fulfilling bread of life and we should feast on him and nothing else. So we're going to dive into this chapter 6 of John, but just a little bit of context. You need to know that early on in chapter 6 um, in, in the book of John, Gospel of John, Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish that a boy had to offer him. This was, by the way, a little detail that the boy, this little boy offered up five loaves of bread and two fish that I only learned just recently. Somehow, I never knew that. And I can thank Tim Tebow for pointing out that little bit of detail. Jesus met a felt need that the crowd listening to him had. Their hunger. And Jesus displayed at the very same time that he was Lord over all of creation. That he had the power to turn a lot from just a little bit of food that was presented by this boy. 
And the crowd responded this way in verse 14. When the people saw that the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come, and in, to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The Jewish people were were looking for a prophet king to rule over their nation to deliver them from Roman oppression at that time. And his ability to feed 5,000 people out of five loaves of bread and two two pieces of fish was a pretty good sign. And so they wanted to force him to be king, which is quite ironic that they who were under oppression wanted to force him to be king. And the next day, when the crowd could not find Jesus, they had to get into boats and go find him and go several miles in the sea on the other side of the sea to find where he was. And this crowd was even willing to consider that Jesus was a prophet in the League of Moses. Now, you have to understand how much they valued and respected Moses as a prophet, the the kinds of miraculous things that Moses had done in the history of Israel. But Jesus said this, though, as they came to him asking for more signs. He said in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then verse 32, you heard this read earlier. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Again, Jesus knew the high respect that people had for Moses, that the Jewish crowd had for Moses, but Jesus wanted to contrast and correct their view about Moses. He had to teach them that what Moses did was pointing them to something much greater than just another prophet coming in the power of Moses. Jesus knew they were thinking of the time in Israel's history when Moses, yes, miraculously brought manna down from heaven, bread from heaven. When Israel had been just delivered from Egyptian slavery, wandering in the wilderness, God through Moses brought manna from heaven to feed the people of God. And Jesus taught the Jewish crowd in these verses these three things. One, That Moses only gave directions to collect manna, but the heavenly father was the true giver of that manna. That two, that Moses gave bread, gave manna that foreshadowed, that pointed to something better, something more important, something to come. But the father now gives the real bread of heaven, Jesus himself, the fulfillment of that manna that foreshadowed his coming. And three, that manna only gave physical nourishment. But Jesus, the bread of life, gives life itself. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is claiming to be God himself. And John has Jesus, records for us Jesus' I am statements, several different places in the gospel making very clear Jesus' claim to be God himself, not just a powerful prophet who could deliver them. Jesus was claiming to be God himself, 
the one who could satiate their spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst, that Jesus would be the one that would fill them up and leave them wanting no more because of the fact that he was God himself. Now these three lessons that Jesus was teaching to the Jewish crowd who came to find him on the other side of the the sea really can be easily adapted to our and to even to the Christmas season in this season where there's so much stuff, whether it's presents or, 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 or parties or just food. We too need to remember afresh that everything we have, including our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus is from the real giver of life, the Father in heaven. Number two, we need to remember afresh that every good thing in creation points to Christ. And it points, these good things in in our creation point to the ultimate thing. God himself through Jesus, that he again is the one who fulfills all of our desires And three, we need to remember afresh that whatever good nourishment or pleasure that we can receive from the things of this world, that again, they can only give us the kind of nourishment that we need in this life, but do not sustain the kind of spiritual, eternal nourishment that all of our souls long for. It's easy for us to doubt Jesus' word that He is indeed the bread of life that satisfies and satiates our spiritual hunger and thirst. This was the response that the Jewish people had themselves. Verse 41, after Jesus again says this about himself, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? like many today, the Jewish crowd before Jesus then, struggled with the idea, this claim that Jesus made that he is divine, that he is God come down in the flesh. It was just too much for them to believe. And so it is today. Christians, I mean, Christmas just becomes about Santa and elves and presents because it's just too hard to believe that God indeed would come in the flesh through Jesus. And people will say, well, Jesus is, is just human. Jesus is just a great teacher. Jesus is not God. He can't be God. The Jewish crowd was happy to make Jesus their prophet king. They were happy to think of him, him as, as this, this prophet in the power of Moses. But to recognize him and worship him as God, that they stumbled over. It was too much. And so it is in our society today. That claim, that claim to be God in the flesh who satisfies our every spiritual longing is often too much of a claim for people in this world today. We may even be here sitting as Christians claiming to believe that and yet at the same time really struggling to live that out in our lives, to live that out as really believing that he is the bread of life through whom we will never hunger or thirst again. Do we come to Jesus as the meal that ends all meals? Or do we run to other toys for contentment? Do we, do we resign 
ourselves to our very complicated relationship with food itself. Thinking Jesus has nothing to do with it. But if Jesus really is the bread of life that fulfills all of our longings, then we must continue to yearn and long and desire for our relationship with God to change in such a way that it also transforms our relationship with food. We just eat, right? We don't even think much about it. Or sometimes we think way too much about it. There's no freedom in our eating. I don't know what your relationship with food is like. But I want to ask that question. How can Jesus, the bread of life, transform your relationship with food? And here are just some questions I would ask, not knowing where any of you are at with regard to this. If you're someone who eats their feelings, how does God in the flesh, Jesus, the bread of life, change that? If you're someone who restricts their food intake for whatever reason, because there's a million reasons why you could do it, how does Jesus, the fulfilling bread of life, change that? If you're someone who finds great pleasure in food. I'm thinking of all the people who post pictures on Instagram of food. Their whole account is food pictures. But you don't have to do that to find great pleasure in food. If you're one of those people, how does Jesus, the fulfilling bread of life, change that? If you're someone who fights for food cause... It's a good thing to fight to end world hunger. But how does believing and trusting in Jesus as the fulfilling bread of life change the way you approach fighting a food cause? Surely, very directly, Jesus' claim to be the bread of life completely changes our relationship with food. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes the way we look to food to save us. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a meal, another meal that is portrayed, different from Edmund's meal of Turkish delight. Can't imagine eating that much Turkish delight. Makes my stomach churn a little bit. But there's a, a scene where Lucy and Peter and Susan are invited into the Beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's home. And a very different meal is portrayed in this scene. And I'm going to read you this meal. Just as the frying pan was nicely hissing, Peter and Mr. Beaver came in with the fish, which Mr. Beaver had already opened with his knife and cleaned out in the open air. You can think how good the new caught fish smelled while they were frying, and how the hungry children longed for them to be done, and how very much hungrier still they had become before Mr. Beaver said, now we're nearly ready. Susan drained the potato- potatoes and then put them all back in the empty pot to dry on the side of the range while Lucy was helping Mrs. Beaver to dish up the trout so that in a very few minutes, everyone was drawing up their stools. It was all three-legged stools in the Beaver's house except for Mrs. Beaver's own special rocking chair beside the fire and preparing to enjoy themselves. There was a jug of creamy milk for the children. Mr. Beaver stuck to beer and a great big lump of deep yellow butter in the middle of the table from which everyone took as much as he wanted to go with his potatoes. And all the children thought, and I agree with them, that there's nothing to beat 
good freshwater fish if you eat it when it has been alive half an hour ago and has come out of the frying pan half a minute ago. And when they had finished the fish, Mrs. Beaver brought unexpectedly out of the oven a great and gloriously sticky marmalade roll, steaming hot, and at the same time moved the kettle onto the fire so that when they had finished the marmalade roll, the tea was made and ready to be poured out. And when each person had got his or her cup of tea, each person shoved back his or her stool so as to be able to lean against the wall and gave a long sigh of contentment. The gospel-centered relationship with Jesus is one where we are content in him. Where we can shove back our stool, lean against the wall, and just sigh with contentment that he is the one who fulfills our deepest longings. To believe that he is the one who fulfills our longings is not to say that we never yearn again. It is to say that when we yearn, we go to Jesus over and over again. And he is the one who brings us that satisfaction, that satiation, that sigh of contentment in a way that turning to other things will not bring you the kind of satisfaction and contentment that you hope for. Whenever good things become ultimate things in our lives, they begin to be things like Turkish delight, where we can eat as much of it as we want, and eventually it will simply kill us because it is not the thing that brings life to our souls. Jesus, the bread of life, is the one who brings meaning and purpose to us. It is, he is the one who brings us freedom from the weight and power of sin. He is the one who brings hope and faith and love and grace and forgiveness into our lives. No food, no toy can deliver us from those kinds of yearnings and longings and desires. They can merely distract us for a moment. But Jesus is the one who brings that kind of meaning, purpose, freedom, love, hope, grace, joy. It is that relationship with God, that relationship with Jesus that satiates us, that makes us full in a way that we hunger and thirst no more, that we know we are not looking for anything else other than to turn to Jesus over and over again and to feast upon him and him alone and nothing else. I conclude with this part in Narnia's book. During this very incredibly satisfying meal, Edmund slips away. Like so many of us do, even when we have known God and how satisfying he is. And the book says, And now, of course, you want to know what had happened to Edmund. He had eaten his share of the dinner, but he, had, he hadn't really enjoyed it because he was thinking all the time about Turkish delight. And there's nothing that spoils the taste of good, ordinary food itself so much as the memory of bad, magic food. That's what sin does to us sometimes. We can be so caught up in wanting that pleasure that we can enjoy the satisfying meal that Christ offers. 
And it reminds me of the most famous CS quote probably ever that is the most overquoted quote by C.S. Lewis that I have quoted as well in this church and other churches. But it, it's so perfect and probably, I don't know what order C.S. Lewis wrote these things in, but the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe just feels hand in glove with this quote. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. From his article, The Weight of Glory. We come now to the Lord's table. It's an ordinary meal. This meal is bread and wine. And we must remember that wine in biblical times was like water. It was not as alcoholic. And it was really drank over water for hygienic reasons. So no more common meal can be presented than bread and wine. It will be like us saying bread and water. And so Jesus took these most common elements of a meal and he gave them a sacred purpose. He infused it with a sacred purpose and he makes himself spiritually present in that bread and in that wine to remind us that he is the one who satisfies. This ordinary meal has a name at the center of it and that name is Jesus. When we partake of the body and blood of Jesus. We are meant to be satisfied at the very depths of our souls. And no other thing in this world can compare. And even though we may come to this table and we may have very complicated relationship with food, yet Jesus says, eat this bread and drink this wine because it is your union with me that it displays, your oneness with me And in this meal, infinite joy is offered. So I want to ask you to come to this table and recognize that all of us in our different ways have been eating mud pies and thinking that we were having quite a good time eating mud. And Jesus says, infinite joy is here at this table in this very ordinary meal that has my name at the center of it. And it is what brings life. I am what brings life. Jesus is the one who brings life. There is a feast here in the form of a seaside holiday. And at this table, our prayer in the Lord's Prayer is answered. Give us this day our daily bread. Yes, it's a prayer for food, but it's also a prayer for the bread of life, Jesus himself. So I hope that you would come to this table and to eat and drink as those who are hungry and thirsty for the God who will never let us down, who will never leave us, and will never leave us unsatisfied. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to receive this feast.